This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Last week's UN climate report showed that governments need to make more drastic moves within the next 12 years to combat climate change or the planet faces some dire consequences. This is major implications for food, not only whether we will have enough to feed the planet if changing weather kills off crops, for example, but also whether we as individuals need to change what exactly we are eating, in particular meat consumption because of the methane gases that animals produce as well as the way these animals are farmed. But how do you get people to change the way they live and eat in a way that makes a real impact? With more on this shift, we're joined here in studio by our friend Karen Glanz, who's professor of epidemiology and nursing at the University of Pennsylvania, as well as a visiting professor at the University of Hawaii Cancer Center. And joining us on the phone, Brian Berkey, who's an assistant professor in legal studies and business ethics as well as philosophy here at the University of Pennsylvania. He's also a fellow in residence at Harvard University's Safra Center for Ethics. Karen, great seeing you again. Hi, good to be here. Thank you, Brian. Great to have you on the phone with us. Yeah, thanks for having me, Dan. Thank you. So, I mean, how much concern do you think we need to have right now, Brian, about food supply because of a lot of these issues of climate change? Well, I think we should be very concerned. Uh, So uh, there's been kind of reports that have come out suggesting that as climate change gets worse, uh, food insecurity is likely to increase, uh, in particular in poorer parts of the world, uh, Africa, Asia, South America, uh, and so on. Uh, So it would be significantly worse at 2 degrees than at 1.5 degrees, for example, and kind of as warming increases, uh, the problems would would kind of only get worse. Uh, At least that's what uh, the experts seem to expect. Uh, And so, you know, these are places where uh, food insecurity is already a problem for many people who are living in poverty, uh, and uh, there are also regions where a lot of food is uh, produced. And uh, where crop production is affected, uh, that's going to affect people's livelihoods. And not only, you know, will we have the reduction in production, uh, we'll have people in those regions unable to uh, buy food uh, because of increased prices and lower supply and so on. It is interesting, Karen, because and we've talked with you on various topics around health in the past uh, of the idea of people really having to think about what they eat and maybe changing a lot of their, their diet in the future so that they can adapt to what potentially could we could be looking at in the next 10 to 15 years. Yeah, that's a real challenging scenario <laughs> Yeah, um, because... You know, most people don't think that long range in in their beliefs and in deciding what to do. Um, There have been trends toward certainly reduced consumption of beef and beef beef products. Uh, Pork products have kind of leveled leveled off. I mean, this is over decades since the 70s and since um, findings that some of these products contribute to the risk for certain cancers, for instance, um, as well as heart disease. So there have been some gradual changes and fairly significant. The question then becomes, are we going to be able to move the needle significantly um, in relation to this challenge and this, you know, threat really related to climate change? Um, My instinct is that trying to persuade people to change what they're eating 
is is only one piece of the puzzle. It's mm-hmm. going to take multidimensional efforts and probably gradual efforts, not like everybody's going to give up meat, for instance. Right, exactly, which means that, that to a degree, some of the companies that are involved in this industry are going to have to help this process move along, correct? They are, and there's been a trend in, um, in the meat industry. There's been a lot of consolidation over the last four or five decades. So there used to be a lot of small producers. Now they're just like these giant conglomerates. Yeah. So they're, all, they're very powerful. <laughs> they're very invested. And they do need to be engaged in any kind of change. And one thing that it reminds me of is um, what happened maybe 30 years ago in the tobacco uh, sure, yeah. area, um, particularly con- uh, states in the United States that had heavy tobacco production were worrying about their economies because, well, if less people smoke and we restrict smoking, then the t- what are the tobacco farmers going to do? And there were a lot of efforts then to try to get them to change what they were farming for. Right. So if the meat industry is going to be a partner in this and try to participate beyond changing its methods of production, uh, one thing that I think will be necessary is to look at what can they do instead of this, because nobody just wants to have their business go belly sure. up. Yeah. Brian, your thoughts? Yeah, so I think I mean all of that is is uh, is helpful and uh, and and right. Uh, I think you know the meat industry uh, being compared to the tobacco industry is interesting. I mean, one thing that is true uh, given the consolidation that Karen referred to is uh, you've got these very large companies engaging in kind of mass production of these products, which on the one hand, uh, results in the production of more food, um, but it does it in a way that uh, is both uh, often environmentally problematic, produces a lot of greenhouse gas emissions, and is also morally problematic, uh, plausibly, because of the way that uh, the animals are treated in factory farms, for example. And like the tobacco industry, uh, the uh, companies that are engaged in this sort of factory farming practice go to great lengths to kind of prevent the public from having access to information, right? Uh, so they don't want anybody taping right in the facilities, kind of, uh, they don't want the public to be aware of, uh, you know, the facts about how the animals are treated and, and what goes on in, in the production of, of meat products. Uh, and so I think if there were ways to kind of make the public more aware of what goes on, uh, that actually could have a pretty big impact on people's meat consumption, right? I mean, people who've kind of, uh, uh, you know, seen what goes on in some of these facilities seem right. to think that, you know, if the public at large became aware of uh, of the conditions that, uh, that exist in some of these places, uh, a lot of people would make the decision to uh, to avoid purchasing these products, and you know that would be good, I think, for uh, a pretty wide variety of reasons: uh, environmental, uh, animal welfare, and otherwise. Karen, yeah, no, I think that's a good point. I I think that it kind of merges with uh, you know another issue and another trend that raises a question of of how far we'll get, because a lot of people that are looking for fair food, as Brian's talking about, and, and, you know, an ethical treatment of animals, um, 
and also people that for for health reasons or ethical or moral reasons, you know, have moved toward more of a plant-based diet, vegetarian, vegan, et cetera. You know, a lot of that is already going on. And yeah. and so it's almost like that's the low-hanging fruit. Those are the people that are, are going to move that way. You know, maybe there is another segment of the public that with I- exposing this, you know, production um, and and these issues, you know, might buy into it. The question is, what happens to all the rest of the people for whom that is not a priority? Right. Um, and I think for that, I think system change will be important. I'm I'm not optimistic about the U.S. government um, creating policies that will, um, you know, reduce the consumption or even change the way that, sure. that beef is produced. Um, and I don't even necessarily mean the current administration, because the the beef industry has long been a political force in dietary guidelines and trying to you know, keep this issue um, away from discouraging consumers uh, from eating beef products. But there are other things that, that could happen that could be the kind of the gradual change. Um, when you talk about, you know, how the beef gets to market, it gets mm-hmm. to restaurants where a lot of beef is consumed, for example, um, we can look at making portion sizes smaller. Um, that that <laughs> yeah. actually can make quite a dent and, and in the same swoop help our health. 844-942-7866 is the number if you would like to join in with your comments or questions. 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter, at BizRadio132, or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. I guess also, Brian, you also need to be looking at at alternate ways to be able to try and produce some of these foods, especially when you talk about like beef and chicken and maybe even pork to a degree because of the amount that is consumed in various parts of uh, of the globe right now, uh, and whether or not there are elements of science that would be able to benefit from helping produce these types of products if people still have the need to, to have them in their diets. Yeah, so that's right. I mean, one of the things that's being worked on uh, nowadays is lab-grown meat, right? uh, trying to kind of uh, produce uh, you know, actual you know, meat products uh, in a way that doesn't involve um, you know, keeping animals in you know very unpleasant conditions and causing a great deal of suffering and so on. Uh, and um, uh, I'm not entirely sure about this, but I uh, I, I think that uh, these processes would uh, have a significant effect if they could be perfected uh, in terms of reducing uh, overall GHG emissions from uh, the production of of meat products. Also, so. Uh, I'm optimistic about uh, um, about lab-grown meat and and its prospects for helping to uh, address these kinds of issues. But you know, sort of in the meantime, I think it's important for uh, people to uh, you know be aware of the significant contribution of um, you know the meat in our diets to uh, to climate change and and. Uh, uh, Make an, make an effort to you know, uh, change the the ways that they eat. So, I mean, there's a recent study from uh, from Oxford uh, that uh, found that uh, going vegan could reduce the average individual's carbon f- footprint uh, in wealthy countries uh, like the U.S. and Europe by around 73 uh, percent. 
So it's the uh, they say it's the single biggest thing people can do to reduce their emissions, uh, right. much better than buying things like sustainable meat and dairy and and so on. Uh, and you know these numbers are pretty significant, especially you know if you're talking about uh, you know some kind of significant cultural shift where people uh, you know uh, make these changes on kind of a large scale. Okay. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I think that the question is, you know, how do how do we nudge those changes along yeah. um, with a, a, you know, and I think it has to be private and public at the same time. Um, you know, there has to be some driver, some incentive for industry to want to work on this in a significant way and not as and, and I'm not as expert as Brian is on some of the climate issues, but not in a in a Band-Aid kind of a way. Um, at the same time, I think that the policies um, need to help push us in that direction. Right. And, it, and it makes me think about actually another analogy, which is things like, you know, emissions from cars. Sure. Um, yeah. You know, that, yeah. you know, we, you know, we we've got some of those. They, some of them might get rolled back, but a lot of the the car safety and car emissions have come about because of public policy, not because car manufacturers voluntarily took those on. Well, Brian, I, I would think that there there's probably a recognition, at least maybe in the state of California, especially considering California has gone through drought for the better part of a decade or longer, and the impact that it has had on some of the of the farming that has gone on in that state of this specific problem, I would imagine that to a degree we're seeing that recognition in other states as well. It's it's actually just the the, the want and the push to be able to really kind of change some of the patterns that we've seen over the last couple of decades, whether it be through companies, through farmers, through people themselves. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, and, you know, as Karen mentioned earlier, uh, the uh, the meat industry uh, is politically influential uh, in the U.S. especially, uh, and, you know, maybe less so in California than in, in some other states. Uh, but... Uh, the changes that we need are going to have to kind of come at all levels. Uh, and, you know, like Karen, I'm not terribly optimistic about uh, the U.S. federal government or uh, at least many of the, the state governments kind of taking really significant steps to right. uh, address these issues, although that's, that's needed. But, you know, the impetus may have to come at least initially from uh, – individuals for and kind of groups within civil society we may need uh you know a kind of cultural shifts to happen at least to some extent uh before we get uh the kinds of policy changes that we will ultimately need to address these these issues um i mean one thing to note is that uh the fact that we eat so much meat uh in the U.S. and and in other parts of the world also uh, ends up requiring that we use a great deal more land for farming overall than we would actually need to kind of feed everyone right. on the planet. So uh, uh, there's a recent study that uh, estimates that uh, if everyone in the world went vegan, we could reduce global farmland use by 75 percent. Uh, and one thing that would mean is that we wouldn't need to keep trying to 
farm in areas that are going to be seriously negatively affected by drought and increased flooding and so on. Um, So, you know, one of the reasons that this is the case, of course, is that in order to produce meat for human consumption, we have to produce a lot of grain to feed the animals that we're raising for meat. Uh, And if we were to just kind of eat the grains themselves (laughs) rather than you know, using them as kind of a means of, of producing meat products, uh, this would kind of reduce the uh, kind of overall need for um, uh, for grain production. But there's uh, there's also, people. Brian, there's also the part that, and again, part of this, we're talking about this from the U.S. perspective, but, I mean, this is something that potentially has to be looked at from a global perspective. And I know the United Nations has, has talked about some of these issues in the past, and, and again, to to get the mindset of so many people around the globe to change, even when some of this information is well known, I, I mean that's a that, that's a an incredibly tall order to try and uh, to try and do. Yeah, it's a difficult problem, and you know one of the reasons that it's a difficult problem is that it's easy for any particular individual to think that their choices don't make a difference. Right. So, right. you know, right. is climate change really going to be any worse if I, you know, order a steak at the restaurant that I'm going to tonight? It seems like that's just such a small thing in the global scheme of things. So on the one hand, you're exactly right. We need to think about these issues from a global perspective. Right. Uh, on the other hand, doing that at the level of the individual uh, can make any effort that we might make seem entirely trivial. Now, I mean, there's a kind of hard philosophical question about uh, whether that could really be true, whether it could be true that, you know, uh, a whole lot of people behaving in some way leads to really disastrous effects, but no individual contribution makes any difference. Um, But, you know, in practice, if we're going to address these issues, uh, we do need people's behavior to change on a large scale. Uh, and, you know, kind of what that means for exactly what uh, we as individuals should be right. doing in terms of kind of changing our own lifestyles or engaging in political action to try to change policies and so on. Uh, I mean, it's kind of a, it's a difficult question, but uh, we certainly need to be doing some of these things, right. uh, and and to be doing them, uh, you know, on on a large enough scale to address the seriousness of the problem. Karen, yeah, completely agree. And I think when we start to think about um, this uh, global context, um, different issues arise. It's I don't think it's easy to bring about change in the U.S., but it's a little bit easier to get the pieces of the individual, the industry, the government, et cetera. Um, when you take the global situation, there are very different trends that have been going on with meat consumption. And emerging economies, and particularly I'll use China as an example, because China's an enormous population. Um, Their meat consumption has dramatically gone up while ours has leveled off or gone down. A lot of pork, correct? Yeah, a lot of pork and a lot of beef. And so the question is, how do we engage those economies who who thought that they were able to eat meat because they finally you know, are not as poor as they used to be. Right. Yeah. Um, And that's the, and that's the other part to it, uh, Brian, that I want to bring up is that the, the economic growth that either we see here in the United States or we see coming out of emerging companies will 
I think, unfortunately, give people the want to have different styles of eating than maybe they have been used to when they did not have financial means in many cases. Yeah, no, I think that's that's definitely right. Uh, as Karen points out, we're seeing this happening uh, to a pretty significant degree in China and some other uh, emerging economies that uh, have experienced significant economic growth in recent years. Um, you know, on the other hand, in the U.S., uh, when we think about uh, you know kind of veganism as uh, uh, a trend in in people's diets, uh, it tends to be uh, kind of associated with. Uh, wealthier communities within the U.S. And so uh, we, what we don't see, I think, is uh, this kind of universal tendency for uh, you know, greater wealth to equal uh, or to generate kind of greater meat consumption. And so that gives us maybe some reason to be hopeful that, uh, you know, through kind of educating people about uh, the effects of uh, meat production on climate change and kind of animal welfare issues and, and other uh, concerns that we might have, we may be able to kind of persuade people to, uh, you know, not necessarily take advantage of the opportunities to, say, eat more meat that greater wealth produces. But it's a real challenge. Karen? Yeah, no, I completely agree. I think, you know, where my work started out years ago was in the area of, you know, kind of understanding individual behavior and how people decide what to eat as a particular focus. And we've piled on and piled on different reasons that you should take into account when you're thinking about what to eat. Yeah. And I think uh, if we're going to succeed with this, part of it's going to have to be generational. Um, okay. You know, we've seen that in some areas related to the environment. I I think of um, recycling as an example. Sure. Um, that was kind of a you know, a, a fringy thing to do four decades ago. Now it's completely mainstream. Well, and in part millennials, uh, many of them living in cities and not having cars right. has changed that dynamic on emissions as well a little exactly. bit. Exactly. So so if we can, you know, if we can move this into a generational issue, which is really what ultimately we're looking at, like in 2050, like if I'm alive, I'll be in the nursing home. Right. <laughs> Some of you, you know, Brian, you're, you're a bit younger, but, um, you know, so it is hard to like project to that. And... The, the trick, though, with that is that in order to have that generation past Gen Z yeah. to have that mindset, you need to have millennials, you know, to be able to kind of lead the path there. Right. And, and and there needs to be more of that. Yeah. Yeah. So we need to we need to start to get that embedded in the conversation and not as something that people need to make a specific complicated calculus out of that makes an intellectual exercise about thinking about what to eat. Great having you both with us. Brian, thank you for your time, sir. Yeah, thank you, Dan. Thank you. Karen, great seeing you again, as always. Thanks, Dan. Thank you very much. Karen Glanz uh, from uh, here at the University of Pennsylvania, as well as Brian Berkey uh, joining us on the show. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.